0: I, I think it's important to queer all of our work in the sense that everybody's unique, everybody's individual, and everybody is going to um, respond differently to different things. So, um, that having been said, I think um, you know one of the
1: as my guest on today's show, Thomas Cook, who is a licensed professional counselor and also in a process being a certified sex therapist through ASEC, which is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And that's a little bit about his approach of how he has an open door and open-minded approach to doing sex therapy. Today is part two of our interview, so stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break.
2: And you, hosted by Toby Jenkins, a licensed marriage and family therapist serving Central Kentucky. Each week, Toby will bring you a show with a topic related to mental health, relationships, or self improvement. The name of the show, Paradigm, comes from that moment in the therapy process when a profound shift in perspective happens for a client. An epiphany sometimes accompanied by physical reaction that leads them to look at things differently and make significant steps towards improving and enriching their lives.
1: And we are back. You are listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships, and I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Today, we are talking sex therapy with Thomas Cook. Uh, Before the break, uh, we were talking about, you know, with being a, being men in this field, or actually with Thomas in particular, he works with a lot of men. And one of the typical issues that uh, Thomas works with is uh, erectile dysfunction in men. So, um, When men come to you with uh, wanting to work through erectile dysfunction, what are some of the possible outcomes uh, from a therapy standpoint?
0: Yeah, uh, great question. And I think, you know, such a sensitive topic. um, I I imagine people struggle to to get information uh, apart from, you know, doing Google searches and things of that nature. Um, One of the most important things um, is the assessment. Um, so really kind of figuring out everything that's going on around the situation. Um, one of the first things that I'll ask someone is, you know, what have you tried thus far mm-hmm. in terms of how, how you want to um, intervene with this challenge? Um, I think it's really important for folks to get um, a medical assessment checkup um there are you know lots of things like um issues with cardiovascular uh system that for, for somebody that's unable to achieve a, an erection that might be a warning sign that let's say you know percentage wise in, in the next 5 years there's a higher percentage that somebody might have a cardiac event so right. um in some ways it's really important to start checking out what's going on um i and working with people that have had that kind of, or, or in the process of our work, they they have had the the medical stuff ruled out. Oh, I guess another one I should mention, folks that are on, you know, certain medications. So mm-hmm. for example, SSRIs, um, these things all impact um, libido. So, um, so I want to do a really good assessment. And I want to, you know, I want to talk about um, the relationship that they're in. And, you know, is this something that they... Um, they're they're just starting to experience erectile dysfunction is this something that's been a a lifelong challenge for them are there certain instances in which they experience it Um, and and if so what is it about those experiences one of the biggest um, challenges to uh, sexual function is anxiety right absolutely yeah this idea that (laughs) it seems a little counterintuitive when you first start learning about it, but you need to be able to relax to, to enter into a state where your body can be fully sexual. So that's the, instead of the sympathetic nervous system, which um, harnesses all of our um, kind of activating uh, forces of fight and flight, what, what the sexual experience is doing or what, what you are hoping to tap into is the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the kind of rest and digest nervous system. Um, So what is this person's relationship to anxiety?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Have they had anxiety problems in the past? Um, And then, you know, relationally what's going on, what's the dynamic? Is it in some way beneficial to not, Um, to not have an erection, does that create some distance between you and your partner that is desired?
1: Mm, That's a good one.
0: I see your (laughs) eyebrows go up. Yeah. So is there, is there some function? Is there some wisdom? Does your penis have some wisdom? Yes. It's kind of a funny way to talk about it. (laughs) Um, So, you know, there are lots of things going on and you know, again, what, what is their idea about why it is important to relate sexually uh, with their partner in this way? Is this the only way that they feel like they can do it, uh, that they can have that kind of relationship sexually with their partner if they're not, um, if they're not able to have intercourse, penis and vagina intercourse, what's, what does that mean about their relationship? Um, So, these are all kind of assessment questions. I know you're asking about outcome type questions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think some of the outcomes might look like learning to um, be vulnerable with your partner to enlist them in this process, in this process of talking about what's going on, about talking about the anxiety, about being non judgmental in the moment if someone does have an erection and then loses it, what's the plan there? Mm -hmm. Do we all run screaming out of the bedroom or do we take a break and go, you know, watch a funny show um, and cuddle? What what are the responses that you have built into that? Um, I think when people can start to look at some of the relationship conflict that they have, that can have a lot of different outcomes. That might not be something that somebody's interested in doing. Um, however, I want to make sure that they are able to identify ways that they would be able to enter into that conflict. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to help them gain the skills to feel like they have some self-efficacy around that, um, if that's one of the things that's going on. Um, and you know, in the end, I think the outcome is just kind of listening to your own wisdom that your body has And learning to adjust to it and and use use the information that it's trying to give you, right? I mean, we want to be able to have our own internal compass. And I think, um, you know, it's not, people might walk in and say, I want to be able to have penis and vagina sex with my partner. And that's their goal. And that's great. And there might be a lot of stuff, you know, there might be a path that kind of winds off way to the side to be able to get to that place.
1: Right. Right. You know, um, so I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be in a fraternity and um, have a lot of older men in my fraternity. And um, this has happened more than, well, I put it this way. This discussion around uh, erectile dysfunction has come up, I would say, a handful of times, any time a certain group over a certain age of these men get together. And so it's led me to believe that, yeah, this is a bigger deal and that there's a lot of embarrassment in terms of talking about it. And so you mentioned a lot of uh, ta- uh, working with uh, erectile dysfunction in the context of a couple. Do you right. work with men individually um, with ED? Because the other, the other theme, just from my experience with these older men, is that they are saying it, they're not saying it, but they're saying I am not the man I used to be um, because I cannot achieve or have an erection when I want to.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, thank, thank goodness that they're not the man that they used to be for (laughs) other reasons. (laughs) Right. right? I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be the 20 year old version of myself. Yeah. Or maybe not even the 30 year old version of myself. Um, They're, there is a lot to this idea or this transition and i'll I'll call it a a cognitive reframe so thinking about things differently in terms of it it might take a little bit more as men age to um, turn them on Mm -hmm. and you know put yourself in the position of a partner whether that's you know in in a uh a gay adult male relationship or a heterosexual adult male relationship with a woman, um, if you looking at your partner and they're walking around and able to have sex all the time, is it really about their attraction to you or are they just kind of like a walking, ready for sex person? Right. So I've worked with people who have described this scenario of, you know, I actually enjoy it now when we are able to have sex after we've kind of figured out what is really exciting or what the context needs to be or what the turn-ons are, because I know it's about me. I know it's, it's what we've done to create that as opposed to um, maybe when my partner was younger and, you know, the testosterone or whatever it was, um, just allow them to perform whenever. So it becomes less simple. Mm-hmm. And yet I think it can also be appreciated more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Real good point. Um that appreciation part is um I think uh in terms of like how we look at at sex and sexuality, uh, you know, linking appreciation with sexual behavior and expression and pleasure, I think is a huge connection. Um because you know, I don't think as you know, one of the reasons we both gotten this work is to work with men and, uh, going back to, uh, why is this important and fishing through, or, you know, from our perspective, listening through a lot of that socializing, um, that we get about sex and sexuality. And in, in a lot of cases, when I've worked with men, actually, now that I think about it, it's, it's so loaded, but, you know, being able to strip away some of those, uh, attachments we've gained over time from some of the unhealthy ways that we're, we're socialized um, are really, really helpful when we start talking about expressing ourselves in a, in a sexual way with a partner. And it's, it can help unlock some of this some of this stuff. Yeah, no,
0: I'll, I'll add, add to kind of the scenario that we're talking about. Um, it can get even more challenging in terms of um, let's say there is a little bit more that needs to happen. Let's say I'm, I'm aging and, and I don't quite have the same levels of testosterone or I have some cardiovascular issues and it takes more. How do I ask for those things? Am I okay asserting that, oh, you know, actually, I'm not just ready to go. It's going to take a little bit more for me. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I, as a man, um, say I need that, A, and I'm not just ready to go, or B, receive that from someone else. What is that like when there's, you know, I'm, I'm the center of attention in that way? So it brings up so much stuff. Um, and really, I think, that's why I think about the aging process for men is really fantastic because it gets, it, it brings out some of those nuances that we like to, as a culture say, aren't necessarily there. Men are simple, men are easy. I don't, I don't really buy that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I tend to agree. I think uh, uh, I, I one of the first discussions just in regular couples therapy is kind of like with, with what you're saying, a lot of men will come into therapy saying that. Um, but um, learning how to help men um, identify those emotions, identify those needs, uh, really be vulnerable, and then a lot of men figure out, oh, I'm not as simple as i think i am and my needs are way more complex um,
0: and thank goodness for that uh,
1: absolutely well we're up against another break uh, today my guest is thomas cook and we're talking about sex therapy um, you're listening to paradigm insights into relationships and you be right back after this break This is Toby Jenkins, founder of Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and host of Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy is a proud sponsor and supporter of Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. At Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy, we work with couples, families, and individuals walking with you through life's challenges and transitions. You can find out more about Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and request an appointment through telehealth or in person at www.jenkinscft.com com or by calling 859-806-0093. And we are back. You are listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Today, my guest is Thomas Cook, and we are talking sex therapy. So, um, you know, before the break, we were talking about erectile dysfunction and a lot of the, uh, the work you do with men individually. Um, you know, uh, when when I end up working with couples around issues with uh, sex, usually the couple has identified one person as the problem. Um, typically, it's the female in the relationship. If we're talking about heterosexual uh, couples. So um, w- when you see that, what do you do with uh, the couple that's identified the one person as the issue?
0: um are you are you saying that the female is identified as the one with the problem or that the female is is identifying the problem
1: oh you usually if it's a heterosexual couple the male has identified the female as the problem okay for their sexual issues yeah
0: sure yeah um it's it's so interesting because um it, it really it for me, it's all over the map and it, it doesn't as much relate to gender um, as much as it relates to who is more skilled or practiced at asserting their needs. mm-hmm um and i think you know if you look at kind of one of the most common reasons why couples might come in for something that they label as sex therapy it's this issue of dis- desire discrepancy so um you know you could talk about frequency of sex or or the quality of sex um the type of sex that people are having and one person desires it more than the other mm-hmm. and therefore how do you talk about that it, who who's the one with the problem right? Is it the person that wants it more, or is it the person that wants it less? Um, and is it, is it helpful to, to say one person is the problem in this? Because, I mean, and I think, you know, this is something that probably a lot of our listeners are aware of. It's, it's normal to have, have sex once, once a month, right? It's normal to have sex twice a day. Um, and everything else in between is, you know, like, Normal and stuff on the, on the ends is normal too, and um, so how do you negotiate that? How is that something that you're able to talk about when you're not exactly in sync with how much you want or what type of sex that you want? Um, so I don't know that I can point to any specific idea that you know it's it's usually this type of person making the complaint. I do think that the culture of um, silence around mm. sex um, will cause some people to be less um, descriptive about what their what their wants and needs are. Uh, there's a you know there's a fantastic new book out, or at least I'm hearing that it's fantastic. I haven't gotten to it yet. I really want to, um, and I'm blanking on the author, but I I think the title is. The right to sex mm. and um you know when I think about that I think of clearly like the gendered ideas about um are our men our women um feeling like they have the right to sex and you know something that I experience and I come from a very privileged um perspective I'm, I'm a white male in this world so you know people line up and, and approach me in a certain way uh-huh. um, i'm I'm not aware of a lot of things that are going on around me. You know I have these kind of socialized blind spots around me, but one of the things that I'm aware of is that the world's kind of set up to sexually turn me on. Mm-hmm. That's not always for my benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be to sell me a hamburger. Yep. you know um, <laughs> parties. <laughs> I might be thinking of a specific commercial. yeah, mm-hmm. so. Um, you know there there is that reality and and therefore part of my experience is becoming pretty um familiar with pleasure right Mm -hmm. or at least the idea that i should be um and i think you know another kind of socialization that women receive is that that's not okay for them. They're very much labeled in a different way if, if they are observed to enjoy pleasure. Well, first of all, pleasure as, as a um, word is not a part of any American um, sex education right now,
1: Mm -hmm. or at least
0: within the last, you know, two years ago, it it wasn't, I'm not sure if there are new gains in that, but um, you know so we're not talking about it with kids we're we're talking about the quote medical aspects of it mm-hmm. uh, we're instilling fear and part of you know one of these kind of not so healthy um, norms of masculinity is to be a very sexual person right that that means that you're you're working you're you're Your plumbing is working and you're you're red-blooded and um you know we kind of have this idea about it's accepted in men in fact maybe even encouraged in men to have lots of sexual partners yes for Um, sure um, yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and the opposite is true i would say of women and, and that's um that has some some pretty specific consequences. I'm not sure that men and women are actually all that different in their behavior when you get down to looking at it. Um, However, it might, you know, one of the possible outcomes is men might present themselves in this kind of bragging way about having Mm -hmm. more sexual conquests, quote, than then they do. And women might say, no, I'm that's not a part of what I do. And it kind of goes underground in terms of their behavior. So, oh,
1: yeah, <laughs> um,
0: I, I'm a I'm a huge fan of this. You know, the theory of, of sex similarities as opposed to sex differences. And I think when it comes down to it, it's really any kind of difference that we look at in terms of gender is mostly about learned behavior and how people mm-hmm. perform. And, you know, when you can design research uh, that cuts through that, or people aren't saying the things that they think they're supposed to say, it turns out that everybody is fairly similar in, in how they behave.
1: I tend to agree in uh, one of the more informative books I've read about, uh, about that topic in the last couple of years, um, Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan. Um, and kind of the, the backdrop of that book is uh, taking a look at a lot of anthropological studies, but without the moral lens. And that tells you, and you find some of these similarities. And actually one of the things that stuck out to me from, from looking at that research was that, um, uh, females are, cap- way cap- are capable of way more pleasure than, than males. Um, and this has been found in, you know, far-flung studies from across the world um, in some other, other studies. And um, I think bonobo uh, monkeys is one of the studies that were, that were done, who from a sexual behavior standpoint, we have a lot of sima- similarities with. Um, you know, you mentioned something. Um, I'm also surprised too, like when, you know, when a typical couple comes in and they point at the wife and say, she's the problem. The communication is, is in we do and in the work I do with couples, we spend a lot of effort on communication. And I think the kind of the the the, the fake move is that in the beginning, when we're when I'm working with couples and we're working on communication, I'm always surprised at how couples don't communicate very well on with each other on what their needs are that are nonsexual. So, being able to describe what your needs are with sexual behavior in your in your relationship um, is going to take practice, but it's such an important part because if we don't have that, then we're relying on the other person to intuit what we want. Let alone if things change through the course of your relationship. So, um, you know that communication um, is super important. That respect is super important. Perspective taking. With the other with your partner in terms of their sexual needs and wants uh, is super super um, important um,
0: yeah my um, you know one thing that's coming up for me from a from a gender role perspective too is really wanting to pay attention to how how do the um, if, if we're working with a couple that is a male female couple how do their stressors you um, impact what's going on. Certainly, you know, this idea of being able to to relax, to be sexual, we talked about already in terms of how it relates to erectile dysfunction. Um, if one of the partner partners is, you know, tasked with taking care of the kids all day long. And mm-hmm. you know, that's that is something that is a high level of stress, you know, for a long period. It's kind of a chronic level of stress, right? Even in a in a healthy parenting scenario, it's, it's something that you need to pay attention to. And you, it's, it's not easy to just uh, flip the switch and be present. And so if somebody's kind of been off and been at work and been interacting with adults all day long and is kind of doing fun, exciting stuff and, and uh, feeling powerful because they're making money, and they come back and they're ready to be sexual. That makes sense, right? You're living this kind of fancy erotic life. Um, So I think the, the domestic piece um, is something that needs to be paid attention to whether or not that's a female or a male taking care of that. I think it impacts people in the same way. So that was something that came up for me as you're talking about it.
1: Oh yeah, that, that is so true. And I see that quite a bit. Um, You know, I stayed at home with our kids (laughs) And so I have a, I have a different lens when it comes to that, but I see that all the time. And so, um, it, it's amazing the things not related to sex that can really provide some support for sex, for your sex life. That's one of the big ones, like, Hey, uh, whoever's been at work all day, do bath time. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, just as an example. So, um, So uh, we're up against another commercial break. Uh, Today, my guest is Thomas Cook, and we're talking about sex and sex therapy. You're listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. We'll be right back after this break. This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You, and this is Woman Insight. You know, today I'm going to talk about who, which parent is more likely to be the one that needs to be cared for when it comes to being in a sandwich generation. So right off the bat is typically the mother, and this is for several reasons and several trends in our culture. One, uh, women tend to have longer life expectancy than their husbands. Two, if the wife does precede their husband in death, then husbands tend to remarry no matter the age. uh, women don't. And then also, there's also lifelong wage inequality or lower earning through the lifetime of women in their 60s and 70s. So therefore, they have less opportunity to build wealth to be able to fund their own care. And so that creates a financial challenge for having care. And so typically, it's going to be the mother. And so also, your parents are less likely to need your help if they are still together, whether that's with their original partner or if they've remarried. This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. One of the biggest stresses that we encounter is money. Money issues strain our family life, create stress in our relationships, and can provoke serious anxiety and depression. And many don't know where to turn to get relief. That's where the Darius Norman Show comes in. The Darius Norman Show airs daily on WTTA FM 101.2 from 1 to 2 p.m. Darius Norman is a certified credit and financial counselor and author of Rewriting Financial Rules. It's his objective to empower others with educational tools and services to assist them in taking control of their financial and credit issues. Tune in to The Darius Norman Show on WTTA FM 101.2 and you can follow him on Twitter at The Darius Norman Show. And we are back. You are listening to Paradigm, Insight Center Relationships, and you. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins, and today my guest is Thomas Cook. He's a licensed professional counselor and has a specialty in sex therapy and in the process of getting certified uh, to be a sex therapist. So, um, you know, um, one of the controversial terms that gets thrown around with sex these days is sex addiction. Um. So I have a position on it, but I'm kind of curious, what is your position on sex addiction, especially in a context with working with either individual couples uh, with sex and doing sex therapy?
2: Yeah,
0: I, this is the question, right? This is the, the big controversy. Um, actually, it's, it's really only, it's, it's not a controversy at all in the, uh, like in the world of asex, for example, or, or sexuality. There's really not much um, consideration that, that we could call it addiction. That being said, um, I do see a lot of folks or people are getting in touch with me initially and they've already self-diagnosed. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure I looked this up. This sounds like what it is to me. I, I saw this website. Um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that this is what it is. So um, I do my best to, as with anything else, meet, meet people where they are. Um, I want to know how they came in contact with that label, um, who, who introduced that to them, how it was received, if they've shared it by anyone else, if they've mm-hmm. shared it with anyone else. All of these things I think are really important. My my academic brain and my clinician brain um, are kind of thinking it does matter what you call it because Mm -hmm. it's about, you know, the causes, right? And there can be lots of different causes for what I would call, you know, what the ASEC world calls out of control sexual behavior, but actually what I prefer to call it is just problematic sexual behavior. Um, you know that it can be well we can get into that a little bit later the the idea that I want to know about is what what does that label do um, for you is it helpful for you does it inform what kind of changes that you want to make Um, does it give you some direction there and what is it like when you when you start some of those interventions Um, or is it Uh, kind of like a pressure release valve in terms Mm. of it it assigns blame right Mm -hmm. all of a sudden there's a lot of for for example if there has been some sort of um, online infidelity by one partner and the other partner finds out about it and the the label of sex addiction is applied does that make it just about one partner now Mm -hmm. And does that help everybody kind of avoid whatever the dynamics are that might have been problematic where, um, you know, one partner was maybe attempting to address those and, you know, met some, met with some conflict and, and kind of withdrew or avoided that conflict and decided to take care of themselves, um, individually in that way, or kind of split off that erotic part of them. Um, this this kind of saves um, saves that couple from having to have that discussion. So it's really just um, this is a this is a label, this is a deficiency or at least a predisposition that somebody has, um, and I think you know I I won't underestimate the influence of um, people you know c- celebrities or sports figures that that identify themselves in this way also. And, and kind of the experience of saying, well, you know, this person, this person has it too. And they're, they're really admired in a lot of ways. And, and look at that. Um, and so in, in that way, I think it actually doesn't have as much stigma. And, you know, in some maybe unhealthy ways, I think um, men can kind of embrace this. I'm such a man that this is the experience <laughs> that I have.
1: So then, if it, So then what would it mean for women that are sex addicts?
0: Yeah. Um, I think it has probably, well, you know, I would want to ask uh, individually and see kind of where, again, where they got that language from. Um, I, I think that probably holds a lot of stigma for women. That would be my guess, just yep. in, you know, talking about it in a, in generalized fashion. Yep. Um, so, you know, we were, well, yeah, that's,
1: yeah, I, I think we're, we're on the same page with that. Um, I, I, I don't like the term. <laughs> and so I I actually think it's even more dangerous, especially when you're working with a couple and one partner has diagnosed the other one with that. And kind of like you, um, you know, what, what function does this label serve in your relationship? And, you know, in a couple context, contexts, um, um, it's easy. I mean, I, that's the way I like to reframe it. Okay. Um, this is a, this is a couple issue, not a his issue or her issue. Um, and so, um, and you're right, uh, it does force, um, not maybe force, but, you know, using that label often keeps couples from really examining what's going on in their relationship in really healthy ways. You know, the other, uh, Topic uh, that comes up quite a bit uh, with uh, sex therapy is the role of pornography. And so I've had previous guests um, who work uh, with sex addiction in particular um, and take uh, an an abstinence view of pornography. And so, um, in your work with sex therapy, um, how does pornography show up? And um, is it used in a healthy way, unhealthy way? how does that fit in some of your couple's work?
0: The other, the other big question, right? Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you know, I was thinking about how, how I could talk about it. I think there's some, you can get online and look at some of the kind of feuding that happens back and forth in this, in this world, both the world of, you know, sex addiction versus out of control, sexual behavior, just as a label, or the kind of um, no no FAP or anti pornography world that exists out there as well, um, and wow, I mean these people are kind of like bringing each other to court and have mm-hmm. lawsuits against each other, and um, it's 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 intense. And I you know I try not to get involved in in pushing my definition of things onto onto others. Um, you know, the same way that I wouldn't push my definition of, um, this, you know, this, this is what a relationship should look like, or, you know, you should have, you should only be with one partner and you shouldn't have other partners. If that was my particular view, that wouldn't be good, um, welcoming therapy from me. So it's kind of like saying, what's your view on sugar?
1: (laughs) Oh, we can talk about that too. I'm anti-sugar. (laughs)
0: okay all all sugar huh wow okay
1: for the last four years just kidding
0: now i know where i am yeah (laughs) um you know it's it's out there and it it exists um, for a reason um it has existed for a long time you know it existed Mm -hmm. before the internet um You know, the the accessibility and the anonymity is always kind of what people talk about in terms of the concerns right now. Um, You know, there there are concerns about the introduction of the printing press as technology, right? Like all of a sudden people will forget everything because they can just read it. That's what we do as a culture. We freak out about new stuff. I think. Well, you know what
1: the second book uh, written on the printing press was?
0: Um, well, one of them was the Bible. Was that the first one? That was the first was
1: one. Okay. The second one was basically. It was the title of the book was "The Life of a Harlot," so it was basically oh, okay. kind of this blend of pornography and book form. <laughs> so, sure. yeah. like you're saying, it's been it's been in our culture and our society yeah. for a long time.
0: Yeah, I, I think the biggest um, problem is what I would call porn illiteracy. Mm-hmm. And that's this idea of not understanding that the pornography you're watching is just as fantastical as, you know, whatever Tom Cruise's last mission impossible movie was where he mm. jumps off a helicopter onto a speeding train or whatever that is. Right. It's just not real. There is a, a series of negotiation that has been in place for months before a particular mm. Uh, scene happens right and there's um, negotiation of consent um, Mm -hmm. even to even in terms of what is this going to look like is this going to look like we've negotiated consent or have we not Um, and I think people miss out on that Um, people don't understand that and we don't you know we don't have that same expectation we start streaming the movie about well is this really real it's for entertainment And, um, so I think it can be used for entertainment. It can be a place where people find out what turns them on. There is an ethical way to consume pornography. It includes, you know, paying for your porn. That's one thing that's kind of a revolutionary idea. And it includes doing some research about the production companies. Um, so, you know, there are some, some aspects to it. It's not just, you know, it's not just a horrible idea that people as sex workers can make a living and be empowered and create a lifestyle. I mean, that's, that's not horrible. That's what we, um, you know, that's what we promote is that people do things that they're excited about and they're good at good at. Um, If it's occurring in secrecy, if it's constantly of your mind Um, if it's something that you're, you're thinking, this is how people really have sex. And so this is how I should have sex. And you're not talking about that with your partner, but you're attempting to bring that kind of dynamic into your relationship. That's problematic. So I could, I could go on and
2: on and on and on and on and on and on
0: about it. I think the last thing I'll say, there are a lot of, um, Uh, references to like brain imaging and things Mm -hmm. of that nature. And it's interesting that like as a counselor, I think pretty much we don't really understand neuroscience. We we have to depend upon neuroscientists too. But all of a sudden in this realm, when you see a brain light up in the same way that it lights up, let's say as an alcoholic's brain lights up, all Mm -hmm. of a sudden we're ready to say, see, the neuroscience says, you know, (laughs) right. And the brain lights up that way when you see a a pretty sunset, right? Or you get a hug from your kid, you know, after soccer practice or whatever it is. Like the brain, the brain lights up. It sure does. (laughs) So uh, I'll say uh, consume all of that with, um, you know, some, some some filter or some skepticism i I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out over time i'm I'm not i'm sure that there's a reason why sex addiction has not been included been included in the dsm quite yet and Mm -hmm. that's that's to me because there's not scientific data for it so good let me let me step down off my soapbox
1: (laughs) that was a good soapbox I think we, uh, I think we see it very similarly in, um, I think, uh, yeah, uh, I would just, I I would be repeating the same stuff you said, but the kind of the big thing that I often bring up is um, I, I, when I'm working with couples in particular, um, this should not be a secret. Um, So if you're keeping this from your partner, that's something that needs to be discussed, talked about, brought out into the open. So.
0: And I'll, um, I'll I'll wrap it up with um, kind of a, a mantra in this in the kind of sex therapy or sex education world and that's you know if if you're trying to go to war with your sexuality you're gonna lose right and so it's, <laughs> it's not about stamping it down and and trying to get away from it as much as it is what does this have to teach me about who i am and how, I, and how i'm um, brought to life in the world i guess is way i'll say that
1: absolutely we're up against another commercial break. Uh, we're talking sex and sex therapy. Uh, my guest today is Thomas Cook. He's an LPC uh, practicing out of Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. You've got mail. You've got mail. All right. So today's list of the mail is not quite a direct question, but actually something I've been asked multiple times, which is essentially due to COVID, a lot of therapy uh, is taking place uh, virtually. And so from your perspective, if a potential client had the option of doing therapy with you, Tom, in person or virtually, which would you advise um, and and what are the benefits of both?
0: There are so many benefits to either. Um, one of the things that the last couple of years has taught me is that it is very possible to do effective telehealth. I think the research is showing that it's just as effective as in-person. Um, I know I have a comfort level of meeting people in person and kind of, you know, I used to talk about it in terms of like feeling the energy of the room, things of that nature. I also understand that not everybody has access to direct, you know, transportation to see who they want to see. And when you start to get into kind of really specific things that you want to have in a counselor, including, you know, maybe their identity or the the experience that they have, um, or their their cost or things of that nature, that sometimes the only way to access them is through telehealth. Unless you can, you know, travel for four hours of your day which most people can't right
1: um
0: so i think either either works um and i think most of the therapists that i know and interact with have have adjusted and have said yeah i've learned a lot about how to do it um there is some, something to be said for people being in the comfort of their home
2: mm-hmm. as they
0: explore some very difficult issues. There is something to be said for somebody going to the specific, what I would call container of a therapist's office and leaving that there, right? And not bringing that out to home with them. So um, it really depends upon the individual and, and what they're comfortable with and how they can start. And I think the beauty of it is you can start with someone in person and transition to working with them online, or you can start with them online and then decide that you want to try something different and work with them in person. So, you know, the, another thing is you don't really have to choose. You can, you can try out different
1: options. Oh, yeah. yeah, Good point. I, yeah. I agree with all of that. Actually. Um, I, I think, um, I think there are aspects because of COVID and telehealth, especially for therapy that will, will remain even, you know, however long it takes us, takes us to get uh, past, uh, past the pandemic. And it's been good. Like you said, um, you know, I've, I've done most of my practicing in Kentucky, which is relatively rural and it's created accessibility that wasn't there before um, for many therapists Um and kind of like you being a sex therapist, this now opens you up as a specialist for people from all over the state of Virginia or wherever else you're licensed too. Yeah. So yeah. that part's been really, really good. Um, the um, the other things I t- I commonly see, not having arranged childcare, um, saving time and in driving into an office or not, um, and I, I think it's going to only get better from the telehealth standpoint. But then, um, you know, and some of the some of the uh, other therapists I've talked to that are seeing people in person are only seeing uh, fully vaccinated clients at this point. Right. Yeah. So so overall, I, I think the accessibility has been a great addition to uh, the field of mental health. So kind of like you, um, as, as long as the as long as you go and see someone, whether it be virtually or in person, the accessibility is there.
0: I'll add one more scenario that I didn't initially think of, um, but then has presented itself and actually works fairly well um, is this idea of seeing a couple and the couple isn't in the same place. So you actually have three people that are in different places. And um, what is actually better about that in some ways is that, couples can face each other we can all three face each other at the same time so mm-hmm. instead of the dynamic of maybe a couple sitting on the couch and they're both talking facing me right and then sometimes yes. i'll have to adjust them so they can talk to themselves yep. everybody's face is is direct yeah um, i hadn't thought about that until i experienced it and that's actually i think an added bonus of doing couples work in that way
1: and see, I thought you were gonna say because I have a more devious answer for that, which is uh, when things get kind of too hot, I can always mute one partner or put a partner in the waiting yeah. room, um, in the same way that I would do it in a person. Because sometimes when I need to split them off, I'll put somebody in the waiting room. But um, that kind of flexibility with either if your, you're working your with families or couples is is a great tool with uh, So Either way, if you're looking for help. Um, the barriers are even lower today to get get help, whether it be in-person or virtual.
2: Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with more Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You with Toby Jenkins.
1: And we are back. You know, uh, Tom, um, we typically typically think about sex therapy for heterosexual couples, but um, queer couples and other varieties of uh, sexual orientation and behavior also come to uh, sex therapy. So what kind of considerations um, are made from a therapy standpoint working with the queer community?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I'm glad that you are bringing it up. Um, you know, I think probably one of the most damaging Um, influences that I see on on sexuality, both for individuals and in in couple relationships, is um, heteronormativity
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and this idea that um, folks should be a certain way and that the, the right way to be is the way that men and women relate to each other. Um, and, you know, there's, there's so much that goes into that, that it's almost, you know, it's kind of overwhelming to think about where do you start in terms of
1: about
0: that. Um, but I think, you know, some of the things that are really important are, are to recognize, um, that we are driven by this idea culturally, at least, or at least we get a lot of messages that, um, sex should be. Uh, penis and vagina sex. It should be, um, it it should be intercourse. um, And that's, and that's what um, proper sex is. Um, And one of the things that I love about the research that's occurring right now uh, in, in queer communities, and I think we talked about this um, already, or, or maybe offline, we talked about this, but, you know, this idea that there isn't Historically, a lot of research about queer folks and sex research about queer folks, Um, but some of the new research that is coming out is talking about things like there are lots of different ways to have satisfying sex that don't Mm -hmm. include intercourse. Uh, For example, if you look at gay male couples, um, it's a very low percentage of the time where it actually includes intercourse, where people are talking about we've had good sex.
1: Right. Sometimes It
0: yeah. just looks, looks different than mm-hmm. the way that uh, people might consider the sex that they're supposed to have.
1: Right. You know, I've, I uh, often bring up that, um, I agree with you totally. There's not enough research, but um, uh, heterosexual couples have a lot that can be learned from the sexual behavior of queer, queer uh, couples um, because it is, it does expand uh, the definition of what sex is and g- actually gives a lot of options. Um, when for whatever reason, uh, the traditional way we think about intercourse, um, is not possible for whatever reason, whether it be, uh, erectile dysfunction or, uh, any type of, uh, physical or, or other kind of, um, impediment to how we think about sex. There are a lot of, di- a lot of different ways to, uh, have a have a pleasurable intimate time with a with a partner. Um, so you know the other thing that um, that um, you know we we have the the definition of uh, this is a dangerous term, but um, historically when we thought about queer sexuality, it's had a a deviant label attached to it, um, and there's far more acceptance around because. Um, You know, historically, we've demonized, um, and because of all those reasons, a lot of uh, queer people come to therapy with that, (laughs) with all of that at play, and so um, I I guess maybe from a a queer perspective, um, if you are a queer couple or individual looking for sex therapy, what are some of the things, um, if you're looking for a therapist, uh, that you should look for?
0: I think that most therapists um, that have been trained or are keeping up to date with what is therapeutically helpful um, for for every client um, are hopefully being um, are informed mm-hmm. um, that they kind of are, are being trained in different um, Perspectives and and kind of countering the, some of the damaging effects that um, heteronormativity has had in terms of really making uh, a narrow vision of of what's healthy sexually. So um, I I hope that most therapists are at least getting kind of basic training um, these days. I certainly think it's important for you to see. Um, in how a therapist advertises themselves, that they are, um, you know, either either they identify, some therapists will actually identify as queer. Um, I I think others at the very least need to identify as allies of the queer community. Um, I think also, um, and, and I'm a big fan of people interviewing therapists before they work with them, um, I yes. think it's really it's really easy to just ask, and I think you'll quickly get a, a sense for um, if somebody is informed, if somebody's comfortable with this in practice, or if it's just something that they've written on their website. So, um, yes, yeah. Another sure, another yeah. great question as you're interviewing potential therapists are you know what what kinds of um, clients have you worked with? Have have you worked with somebody that identifies this way? Um, And what was that like? Do you feel like you were successful for that? Do you feel, um, you know, we talk about having cultural competence in the therapist world. Um, I think you can very, I think as somebody looking to get therapy, um, as somebody looking to commit to this kind of difficult and vulnerable at times relationship with somebody that's gonna hold all this stuff for you, I think it's completely acceptable to say, are you competent to work with these populations? That's what you're asking for. You're, you're negotiating and you're contracting to, to get a service and you have the right to ask for that. I, I think it's important to queer all of our work in the sense that everybody's unique, everybody's individual, and everybody is going to um, respond differently to different things. So um, that having been said, I think, um, you know, one of the, I might be getting a little bit lost in how we're talking about this, but, but (laughs) my mind is going back to, I think one of the biggest dangers that people that are kinky face when they're seeking therapy is the um, potential for the therapist to pathologize that behavior to say, you know, this, this is an acting out of sorts based upon something that's wrong with you. Yes. Um, which you know doesn't fit with any of the research. Um, mm-hmm. There's no you know higher correlation of mental issues or mental health disorders with folks that uh, describe themselves as kinky. Right. Um, and in fact, there are, there is a lot of research out there that would suggest that uh, couples that practice, um, for example, BDSM mm-hmm. and have very honed communication skills. Are healthier in their relationships yes. because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I guess to just talk about rules, I think the the rules are always ask. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> always, <laughs> always ask what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you know people identify themselves in a certain way, um, and my idea about what that looks like is not always necessarily exactly what their idea is it's, it's the same thing as when somebody says i'm asking somebody well how are you feeling you know as we're talking about that right now oh i feel frustrated i don't just say oh yeah i get it because frustration is a really complex thing right frustration sure is. is like a lot of different things kind of mashed together i need to know that in the same way that i need to know what is it like for you to identify as queer or to be a trans woman or a trans man Mm -hmm. or a gay man, or, you know, these are not universal experiences. These are all unique.
1: So Tom, how can people find you if they want to work with you?
0: I would say the easiest way is to just Google um, my name. And so it's Thomas and my last name is Cook, C-O-O-K-E. Um, psychology Today is um, maybe one of the first things that will pop up if you type in Thomas Cook, therapist, Charlottesville. And then that'll get you connected to everything that you need to make contact with me. Um, if you just want to email me directly, my email is my name. So Thomas Cook, um, and then the letter is LPCE, licensed professional counselor at gmail.com.
1: Awesome. Well, Thomas, it's been a pleasure having you on today. And uh, I often say uh, if we've helped one person today, then our time has been well worth it. But I have a feeling we've helped a lot of people connect some dots in ways that they can improve their relationship. So, you've been listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. We'll see you next week. Toby at Paradigm Radio Show.com. You can find archive shows and additional details about guests of the show at the show's website, www.paradigmradio show.com. You can follow weekly one-minute insight posts on the show's Instagram and Twitter feed at Paradigm Radio Show. For archived episodes, you can find episodes wherever you subscribe to podcasts: Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. paradigm insights into relationships and you is brought to you by jenkins professional services and hype media global
2: thank you for tuning into paradigm insights into relationships and you with toby jenkins join us again
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's, um, that's so true. Um, you know, you bring up, um, even, you know, as, as we think about sex and sexual behavior, fitting in a box, it's not unusual for heterosexual couples to have these kind of out of box kind of uh, desires or ways they want to express themselves. Um, and so there's a lot to learn from the kink community, kind of going back to what you said earlier, I think, um I think the comment was uh what is normal and we're free to define what normal is and you know i'll I'll add to that too that um um there has to be a tremendous amount of communication and a lot of trust um especially being that vulnerable with uh with a partner whether it's something that's uh you know fantasy related in a heterosexual couple or in the kink community but um you know the the the, what to look for. I think, uh, you, you've summed it up really well. And, uh, that's, that's the important part of like screening a potential therapist to make sure that, uh, that their knowledge is up to date with what you need to get, uh, with what you want to get out of, out of therapy and that, um, you can work with them. So, um, well, we're up it's against it. A- yeah, sure. is. <laughs> sure. Is. And your time, I hear, I hear that from clients all the time. Like, uh, I, I know you're tired of here. And like, no, like, this is what we're here for. So um, yeah. but we're up against a commercial break. Um, you're listening to paradigm insights into relationships and you and we're talking sex therapy today with uh, Thomas Cook. We'll be right back after this break.